Today I'll be reading for you and preaching for you out of Hebrews chapter 12, just the first two verses, verses 1 through 2. Hear now the very word of God. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we are here before one another, we know that we are not here alone, that we are standing before all of your people, that we are here praising you as many others have already begun to praise you this day throughout the world, and those are still to come just this day to praise you and bring homage to your name. But help us, Father, to realize how great you are and how magnificent is the magnitude of your people, more than the grains of sand on the seashore, more than the stars that are in the sky. And Father, this is your glory. It is pointing to your work and your fulfillment of promise. Help us this day as we think about this wondrous passage that we would see Jesus, that we would look to Jesus, that we would seek him each day in all that we do for his strength and for his power and for his glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As you can tell that we're beginning to get to more summary type language, that we're coming closer to the end. We are in the last two chapters of this particular letter to the Hebrew Christians and really ultimately to the end of this particular sermon And I hope that by now, after preaching on this for some time, that the particular points that I have met over and over again, kind of honing in on three of those lettuce points of what I see to be in Hebrews. And again, that's just three, and some of them overlap. There's probably more like four or five, and some of them merge together here. But I hope that you can see here that even in this particular passage, in these two particular verses that there are really those three points are being highlighted once again. And if you remember that those three are to draw near to Jesus, to hold fast our confession without wavering, and to be amongst the body of his people, to be assembled together, to look at the magnitude of his church as we are those who not only are strengthened by it, but those who are serving that particular assembly and glorifying God and provoking one another the faithfulness We see here again the inversion kind of going back. We flip and flop 
those three particular points. And based upon chapter 11, we know that we saw this great hall of faith of these people of the past, these patriarchs of the faith from the old covenant that pointed ultimately to the promises of Jesus Christ. And we see there has it funneled down to the end of both the glorious success of those particular works of God in those people, but also the, the wondrous suffering and difficulty, and it all narrowed down to us that God was bringing about the continuation of his kingdom so that he would bring all of his people, that none of his people would be left behind. And that is still the posture in that we are in today, that as a church we can see the victorious reign of Jesus Christ throughout the world. His name is known all over. His word has been translated to a multitude of languages, thousands of different languages but there continues to be suffering and persecution and difficulty and struggle even for us this day, all for the purposes of continuing to bring about the fulfillment of his kingdom. I hope you can see that here, that we left that off. And then now in the verse one, we see that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. So the first thing that we would see in this particular point is that we would that it would basically be like another let us. It would be let us remember all of the witnesses. And if you remember that word witness is translated also to martyr, that the actual Greek is more associated with martyr than it is with witness. But these people who have seen the wondrous work of God, who know the work of God, and who are living it out, as a witness and serving their whole lives, even to some of them, to the point of death, and they are pointing to the promises of Jesus Christ. Most of the time when that particular point, when we're looking at the corporate component of the kingdom, there is always this tension of warning. Now the warning actually follows into the second point for us here as we are being provoked to be faithful. That we basically, I summarized my particular point that we see in the middle of this particular passage. That basically we are to let us cut loose the dead flesh. Here we see that we are to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely there are a lot of different ways to see even here that this is a particular analogy to an athletic an event where they are tossing off the extra weight. But as I summarize my thoughts here, I see that just to cut loose the dead flesh, the dead sin, the things that are hanging on that are ultimately defeated because of the work of Christ. That we are to let loose of those things, to cut loose those things. And then lastly, we are to draw near to Jesus and his joy by looking and living to Jesus and his joy. It's basically the same three points, just being rearranged and applied in different ways and now being summarized in light of what we have just seen with the saints of old and understanding that now for the saints present and for the saints to come, that it all has the same purpose and it all has the same marching orders and it all has the same Hope for us to draw near to Christ because of the work that he has done. It's fall. Obviously, we can feel the fall by being a little cooler and without the aid of air conditions being cooler. And as we go outside, we know it's even colder. And a lot of times during this time of the year, I know that for this particular region of the world is that it's football season. 
And in that, I know that football, I know for some of you soccer fans that when you think of football, you see a different kind of football. But here in this region, people like football. And, and you know that inside of any kind of sport, whether it's football with two O's or football with a U, that home field advantage is always a positive thing in most cases. What, what does home field advantage entail? What kind of things are positive? What's, why is that a good thing? Why do people want to play uh, their competition in the home field area? The support. The support of your people, correct? What else? Right, even though in most cases the field or the court should have all the same measurements, there are things about the environment that's still in the home area that you are familiar. Sometimes, especially if you're an out, if it's an outdoor sport, it could be the actual weather. You know, if you're playing in Tampa versus if you're playing the Buffalo Bills or the Pittsburgh Steelers, that's one reason why a lot of those kind of um, football. Uh, teams that they get a, a real hearty bunch. It's too bad that the Edwards are not here because I know Cindy's a big Buffalo fan and a New York fan. She knows that those are hearty fans because they're willing to sit out in insane kind of weather. And those particular players are familiar with that environment. And so they have an advantage really wherever they go. Maybe the heat would actually be more challenging to them and that they would actually prefer to play in cold, icy, snowy weather. But in this particular case here, when we think about this great cloud of witnesses, it is meant for us to be thinking about a competition. It is an athletic event, is the analogy and illustration that this particular preacher is making in this particular letter and sermon, that there's an athletic event. It's starting out this chapter, imagining that we are surrounded in like this great auditorium of witnesses of the history of God working through his people and then telling us to, to move on and to get ready for this race by laying aside every weight, every sin, and then running, looking toward Christ in this race that's set before us. But for us, we have a, a fairly unique situation because we are being told in this particular passage that because of the work of Jesus Christ and the power of Jesus Christ, and because of this great cloud of witnesses, we have a home-filled advantage while we're playing as exiles, as we are playing away. Because we are in a place that is temporal. We are in the world, but not of the world. We're being told that in reality, even though it may not look like it, we have the home field advantage. We have all of these witnesses around us cheering us on. Now, as we look into the world and we leave here, and I was just talking to Josiah, that even in our little region, in the school that he's in, and even in the work that we are, we know that we have a contrast to that reality. We know that there are the enemies of God. We know that the other team also is surrounding us, that we are immersed in a world of sinfulness. We are immersed in a world of ideology that is opposed to the kingdom of God. 
And they're cheering on and they're scorning and they're booing and they are saying all kinds of things to bring us down. But we're being told by the preacher here that we are surrounded by a so great of a cloud of witnesses of what God has done and how he has fulfilled his promises that we are the promised people. And as they point to Jesus and provoke us in Jesus, we should know that because of the victory of Jesus Christ, that yes, we do have the home field advantage even while we are here as the await team, as in an area that is hostile to the kingdom of God. That is to encourage us, but also to give us an understanding of the reality of the nature of this particular race. That there is victory assured, that we are not alone, but that the, the fight, that the race before us is going to be challenging. We can see here that, again, to just prove the point that I think this is a continuation of the same points, is that it, it's basically echoing chapter 4. If we look at chapter 4, that we see that there is a promise of entering into his rest, but we see this contrast that there were those who were not united by faith with those who listen. That whenever we see these points highlighted, there is also this com corporate component. And it's a, co a corporate component of those who believed and those who do not believe. And we are seeking for that unification and that oneness amongst those who hold on to Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 10, where we see those points Highlighted once again, we see the very direct admonition to us to let us consider how to stir one another up into good works and not neglect assembling together. We see that there is this team highlighted each time throughout all of the scriptures. We see that there is the promised people of God that is a part of this continual provocation for us to walk together in Jesus Christ. And now we see here that we are surrounded. We are surrounded by our teammates. We are surrounded by our people. And they are pointing to Jesus and encouraging us on as we hear their stories and as we remember the things that Jesus has done. But as we are hearing those cheers, as we are hearing the proclamations of Jesus Christ, we see this call to let off this weight and sin. I appreciated so much the terminology here, just the, the raw reality of what we see here. It says, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Just as we see that this cloud of, <clears throat> cloud of witnesses is so great of a cloud of witnesses, we see here that the sin that the writer is talking about is a sin that clings so closely. So what is this weight in sin? Well, I think there could be a, a large spectrum of things that this weight in sin could be. It can be just the simplicity of weariness. Even in our faithfulness, there is a weight. Because of the sin of the world, we know that there is a weight upon us as we deal with that contrast. Even though that we know that there is this great cloud of witnesses around us, that we keep hearing the voices of the await of the other team, of the opposing team, the, the team of darkness, the team of death, that are constantly cheering on death 
and scorning us. And that is a wearisome thing as we are trying to move forward in our faithfulness to continue on in our race. That sin of the culture and the world around us is very wearisome. The work of being faithful, the, the work of being faithful even in just regular relationships, whether it's family, whether it's friends, whether it's church, whether it's work, it's wearisome. And because of that, in addition to that, we also can have doubts because of the hard work and the difficulty, because of the contrast that seems sometimes louder than that great cloud of witnesses, it can tempt us to doubt. We can doubt the promises. We can not just doubt the promises of what God has doing, but maybe sometimes the way that he accomplishes things. Sometimes we think that it surely it can't just be Jesus died for our sins and that he is victorious. Satan can twist and turn things to the point where he will one time he will tell us to be bound too much to the law for our hope. And then the next minute he is promoting and encouraging licentiousness. All of those things causing us to doubt the very promise and word of God. But then simply these weights that are upon us, and we can see it highlighted here in this passage, and we can see it in the really the whole sermon to the Hebrews is just simply our personal sin. It's not giving us an opportunity just to point to other people. It's not just saying because of the culture. It's not just saying because of the opposing team. It's not just saying because of a general idea of sin. It's talking very specifically here. This admonition and this summary is telling us to consider those particular sins in our life that cling so closely to us. And it gives us an understanding of the nature that the Greek here is that the word is meaning entangled. Things that are so close and interwoven with us that we are to lay aside these particular weights. That we cannot run forward with these weights on us because we are tangled up. We can't move our feet. We can't move our hands. We cannot perform in the race and calling that we have because of this very sin, not just a cultural sin, not just the ideology of the day, but how we are actually thinking and living in our life. And that's very important for us to remember that that is the first place that we need to understand the victory of Jesus Christ to be applicable to. We are looking forward and longing for him to redeem the culture But sometimes in our day, especially amongst the idea of Christian nationalism and because we see a God with a capital G and we hope in his victory in our eschatology, we spend more time focusing on the reformation of the culture and we overlook the very simplicity of the reformation of our own hearts. And so we are called to do something kind of uncomfortable here because This analogy and illustration that the preacher is making here is that he is ultimately, if we know what kind of races they were doing at that age, he's actually telling us to disrobe. That we have to take off our filthy rags that are interwoven with us. Because that's what they would do in these races. And it 
you know, I'm sure it, it, we're not to, at all to take these in a, in a very literal way that we are to come and to worship naked or to do those things. But we are called here in this allegorical understanding of seeing how we are to, to take off these filthy things that are still clinging to us. And that's why I thought the best terminology is for us to cut loose the dead flesh because we know that because we are going to all die and the things that are associated with our fleshliness and our death, it's all going to pass away. And the sooner that we can get rid of that sin and to remove it, the faster we're going to be in a place we're able to run more freely in our faith. But before our minds go too far in imagining ourselves all having to disrobe, I thought of another analogy that I thought was very helpful in this regard. And sometimes I remember when I was a kid that um, during this time of the year, people would do hot air balloon races. That was a particular area that we would travel through going to Wadesboro, North Carolina, where there were all of these balloons and I always loved going there. My parents, I don't know what particular event would occur that we would drive through this area, but uh, they would, I think it was called Love Valley. I don't even know where that area is. I need to look it up and see if they still do these um, hot air balloon races. But it was these beautiful um, displays of balloons that would be, sometimes, it seemed like there were hundreds of them. Of course, I was a little kid, so it, I may have multiplied more in my mind than what was the reality but before they would take off, if you looked out into a field, you would see these wrinkly piles of deflated balloons. And they were ultimately dead. And then if they would start them up, you would see that some of them would begin to, to, to have the heat inside of them. They, somehow or another, they would turn the, the jet. If you've ever watched one of them, the, the, ga, the, the flame would go into the balloon and it would fill it up. And it would be this beautiful display of a balloon. But it would still be on the ground. What was holding it to the ground? Were these weights that were on the basket. There were these sandbags. Now, it's funny, as I was, <laughs> I was thinking about this and I was researching a little bit, the, the sandbags, you will see sometimes cartoons of hot air balloons that have sandbags and are called ballast. That's not the case. You have gas balloons that have ballast and they actually release the ballast as the gas is being um, made low so that they can continue to stay afloat. But in a hot air balloon situation, the only reason why you would have the sandbags tied to the basket is to initially to keep it grounded as the hot air balloon is wanting to lift up and they have to release all of those sandbags. You don't see hot air balloons that still have the ballast attached to them. It's only a temporal thing before it rises. They have to cut loose those particular weights for them to rise forward and rise upward. They have the heat inside of it. They have the glorious uh, expansion of the balloon, but they're still on the ground. They're still looking at things at the same level as everybody else who are walking on the earth. We are called here to cut off those weights that weigh us down so that we may be able to run, so that we may be able to be lifted up, that we'd be able to get further up into the air with Jesus ultimately. Because of our sin and because of the weights that are around us, we are still just with the rest of the people. We have not been able to get further up in our particular race. The passage that we have here 
Many commentators continue to reference it with Habakkuk 2.4, and it's basically saying, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright with him, him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. But because the soul is puffed up, in a sense, in a way that we, as we sit in the basket, we are, we're puffed up with our own weight, and therefore we're not able to be upright and to go further. But the righteous shall live by faith, trusting in that that will propel us forward into the sky. So we are called to cut that off. Is in a sense we can think how that heat is ultimately Jesus Christ. It has made what was laying flat alive, but it has not yet begun to run and, and begun to flourish in its furthering. It's no longer dead, but it's still entangled. It's still stuck. And the preacher here is telling us, reminding us of what Jesus has done, that we need to cut that off, cut those weights off. And it's not going to be us. And I, in a way, I kind of like the balloon analogy more than the running analogy because as we look at this passage, we see that, that it is Jesus that is the founder of our faith. He's the one that brings life to our dead balloon. But he's also the perfecter. He's the one that's going to lift us beyond. It's not going to be by our own strength and running that we're going to be able to run the race. But it's going to be him that's going to lift us up. But we who are still entangled in our sin are going to be weighted down. So how do we get past this, these weights? Well, it's not even going to be by our own strength that we can cut that off. We can go back to chapter 4 of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It is the word of God that God uses to cut that entangled sinful heart. If you can imagine the basket being like our heart, still tied down with ropes to these weights of sandbags, these Worthless things that are in ultimately just dead weight. It is the word of God that as we are before the word of God, in the preaching of the word of God, in the proclamation of the word of God, in the reading, in the personal study or the corporate study of the word of God, it is that that is going to be sharper than two, any two-edged sword that will cut through every entanglement of sin and also over any other weight of doubt and distraction For us to think that it's going to be either the law or licentiousness that we want to go to. Or even just the overwhelming weight of weariness. It is the word of God that will free us from those particular weights. And it's important for us to remember inside of this, in the very center of this passage, that he is the founder and the perfecter. That it's never us by our own strength. It is always Faith in Jesus Christ, not only for our salvation, but for our continued sanctification that is still the work of Jesus. John Calvin says that a true true Christian will not ascribe any prosperity to his own diligence, industry, or good fortune, but he will acknowledge that God is the author of it. 
He is the founder and he is the perfecter. There is nothing in our gain and our race that's going to be in of our own strength. John Calvin also says that Christ's intercession is the continual application of his death to our salvation. As we see here, the preacher to the Hebrews telling us that Jesus is on the throne making continual intercession, he's not just pointing back to the salvific work that he did for us and that freed us from our bondage to sin, but he is continuing to make intercession in a way that is our continual application of his death and resurrection in our life each day as we live. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Paul reminds the Galatians, and he's kind of rough there if you remember this phrase. I don't think he uses it very often, but in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. We see here that Paul once again is saying it's not just your salvation, but it is your sanctification. He's saying, oh, foolish Galatians, you know, was it the works of the law that freed you in the first place? Well, of course not. It was the Spirit. And you're hearing with faith. Then also continue in that. That it is with the hearing of faith that we are to continue in our sanctification, trusting in Jesus Christ. We see here that Paul, excuse me, the writer to the Hebrews is not telling us to just run with endurance the race that is set before us by now that we're free, let's you know, be super strong in of ourselves. He tells us to let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. We see that this is focusing on Jesus, that it's, we're focusing on him as our hope. We're not just in the great cloud of witnesses of being the promised people with the home team all around us, but we also have the player. See, it's not just us on the field as we have everybody around us going, go, 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 you can do it. It's us also amongst the spectators looking at Jesus. That we are witnesses of what Christ is doing. And it is also for us in our calling to continue to look to Jesus. He is the star player. He is both the quarterback and the receiver. He is the one who is going to do all of the work to bring forth the victory. And that he allows us to be considered those on his team. Even though he is the one doing all of the work. It's important for us that by the same faith that we have as we look for that salvation, that one that brings us from the wrinkly dead balloon into life, that it is also that fire of work of the crucifixion 
in resurrection and reign of Jesus Christ that is to lift us up. We're just in the basket. He's the one who is lifting us up into the heavens. So we are called to look at five particular things in Jesus. First of all, we are called to look to Jesus and his joy. That as we see Jesus doing this work, as we see that he is the fire that has made us alive and is lifting us forward, is that it is Jesus was propelled by looking to the joy that was set before him. That it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. What is that joy that was before him? As he, we see in the Gospels as he walked on this earth that he faced the greatest crucifixion and pain that any of us can imagine. And most of all, the pain of our sin being placed upon him. What was he looking at? What was he having set before him as he truly did endure the race by his own strength and by his own power? Well, it was the joy of what was to come. It was the joy of the resurrection. It was the joy of the ascension. It was the joy of his reign. And ultimately, as we think about the whole book of Hebrews, it was the joy of the fellowship of his people. The crazy thing is, is that what set was set before him was fulfilling the promises of his father and the love that he has for us. That he has for the great cloud of witnesses and ultimately us. And so we can see here that this is one of the reasons why we are called to be together is because we are his prized possession. That's what he was focusing on. That's why he was enduring the pain that he endured. And so therefore, we are to be like Jesus and we are to look at that same joy. We are to look at the joy of the glory of the Father and the love of his people. To look and long for his people. For all of his people. The people here and now, the people in the past, I look forward to seeing so many. I look forward to seeing all of them. There's some of them you just can't wait to get with. And hopefully be able to converse with. And I'm hopeful. Sometimes this is the hard thing when I think about this culture. And I keep getting reminded over and over again. I'm hopeful for the people to come. It almost seems like, man, we're, we're just dwindling down, it seems like. But we're not. The Lord is growing his kingdom. I'm looking forward to even my great, 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 great grandchildren. That I will not meet in this life. And get to hear the stories of what God did in their life. We are to look to Jesus and his endurance. We are to remember that the necessity, that there was a necessary pain and suffering for him to achieve the reward of that great joy. We just flip a few pages back to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35 and 36. It says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. That we must remember that as we have confidence in what Jesus has done, we also need to remember that our particular confidence has with it tied a calling of endurance and suffering. 
That if we like that idea of that joy of the fellowship of God and the glory of his name, we need to remember that attached to it is that need of endurance of that suffering. And then most of all, we see there that it was the joy that was set before him that he endured our greatest hope, which is the cross. The cross, we are to look to Jesus in his cross. It is the very thing that frees us from that entanglement of sin. And it is that continual work that his cross did that continues to renew our lives and to sanctify us and to redeem us. It wasn't just a thing that from our first initiation of knowing him, the work of the cross is continually bringing his people, all of his people, unto himself. So we're to look to Jesus in his joy. We are to look to Jesus in his endurance. We are to look to Jesus in his cross. And we're also to look to Jesus in his despising of shame. He despised shame, that as he not only was looking at the joy and that he was longing for the joy, and that's what got him through the endurance as he went to the cross, it was the despising of the shame. It was the despising of the scorn. It was the despising of our sin. And if Jesus despised our sin, we should despise it too. That as we look to Jesus and we delight in him and we delight in that present and future communion and fellowship with him, that we would want to despise the things that separate us from that communion. I think about that a lot when I let my mind wander into sin. And and I I see it, it's easier to see it with other people, but you, especially with children, it's easy to do it with our littlest one with us and we're like, Why is he doing that? He knows that that's just going to make things difficult for us. It's going to take away the peace of the home. We're not going to get along for a while. It's not going to be very pleasant. Why would he want to do that? And then I start thinking, why do I give in to my own sins? Why do I allow myself to be disgruntled unnecessarily? Why do I let myself be wanting to have my own personal peace and affluence instead of the Lord's. It's not going to be any good. And then I despise it, and then I hate it. And that's a good thing. We are to despise the shame. We are to despise the things that the Lord despises. We are to delight in the wonder of the things, in the good that he delights in. And then lastly, we are to look to Jesus in his throne. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As we hear this great cloud of witnesses cheering us on, we have to continue to remember that they are pointing to Jesus. They're pointing to his promises, which ultimately as he comes, he points to the fulfillment. And then as we see him raised up into the air and we see him now seated, seated at the right hand, we have Stephen's testimony that he is standing at the right hand of the Father. In that moment, he is standing before Stephen. But we see and we know that he is reigning, that he is victorious. We are the promised people, but he is the player that is victorious. He is our champion. 
in this race. And we are only called to look to him and to hold to him and to rest in faith in his strength for our own, in his endurance for our own, in his joy for our own, in his cross as we deal with our own. And his despising is to be, our despising is to be matched with his despising because he also promises us to sit with him on that throne and to reign with him in that victorious end. And he sings to us. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, it says, For he who sanctifies, remembering that he is the founder and the perfecter, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. What we see here is that Jesus is amongst the greatest of all the cloud of witnesses. That that's the primary thing being focused on as we think about this whole arena of his saints. It is Jesus that is there also telling of the name, singing to us, saying that he is not ashamed of us because he despised the shame of our sin and took it to the cross. He is not ashamed to us. And again, I will put my trust in him. He is trusting in the father's promises himself. And therefore, we are called to live by faith as he proclaims, Behold, I and the children that God has given me. I wonder if you think about this particular passage, if this particular hymn comes to mind. And I think that Helen LaMille likely was thinking about it, though when I read about the history of this hymn, it says that she was thinking of Isaiah 45. But I think that her particular hymn is perfect in light of these two verses. And I'll close by reading the lyrics of what was originally called the heavenly vision. As we think about this calling for us to look to Jesus, it is appropriate that this was called the heavenly vision. That our vision is to look toward where Jesus is sitting and remembering what he did when he was here on the cross. And remembering that it was the resurrection and the ascension that brought him there. And that we are heavenly focused. As we consider this great cloud of witness, it is the heavenly vision. You probably don't know this hymn by the name, The Heavenly Vision. That was written by Helen the Mill. Almost 100 years, over 100 years ago in 1918. Published actually in 1922. The name of that hymn is called Turn Your Eyes. Upon Jesus. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see? There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful 
face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. As we look up at the flame of Jesus Christ's work in his reign, and as he lifts us up into the heavenly places, the world will grow strangely dim. The things that are passing will become less of not only an interest, but a distraction, because we see the light of his glory and grace. Let us pray.